Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Stephen Gamble and this is the Real Worth Stocks podcast where we talk about individual stocks and investing principles. You can find out more about us at www.realworthstocks.com or my substack at www.realworthstocks.substack.com and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @realworthstocks or you can email me at stephen at realworthstocks.com. In today's podcast, we're going to cover two things. First, a little bit about Real Worth Stocks and about me. And then we're going to delve into investing in banks. And we're going to use the Bank Investor's Handbook by Nate Tobik to look at that. And we're going to apply the principles in that book to a real-life example of a bank in the US. A little bit about myself and Real Worth Stocks. So I live in the northeast of England, near the city of Durham. And I really enjoy looking at stocks, analyzing the stocks themselves, but also the underlying businesses that they represent, understanding the industry, the market, um, the growth, the durability, all those sort of things. And I have three different strategies that I follow for stock investing. Merger arbitrage, where I'm looking to buy shares in companies which have got announced corporate takeovers and profit from the spread between the current price and the takeover price. Uh, ben Graham net net investing where I'm looking to buy uh, statistical bargains or really cheap stocks uh, which are valued at less than net current asset value and also small cap value where I'm looking to find stocks which have which are quite small and they are often overlooked and not uh, very liquid or not traded a lot. So there's a couple of key ideas behind real worth stocks. Firstly a stock represents a piece of a real business. And therefore, if we understand the business and the earnings and the valuation of the business, we can understand what over the longer term will drive the stock price. And stocks are not just pieces of paper that, or, or numbers on a screen that go up and down, but they represent a real business. And the second key idea is that of Mr. Market, which is described um, by Benjamin Graham and the Intelligent Investor. The idea that sometimes investors are greedy or fearful and therefore prices go above or below what the intrinsic value of the stock is. And by trying to understand the business and try to buy at a price below intrinsic value when investors are fearful, that's a, a one way to make profits in the stock market. So the easy part about stocks is knowing what the price is. The harder part is knowing what the value is. And that's what I spend most of my time and energy focused on, trying to understand the business, what's driving the intrinsic value of the business, and then be able to accurately value it in terms of like a, a book valuation or like free cash flow plus growth or other types of valuation. All right, so let's talk about the Bank Investor's Handbook by Nate Tobik and Kenneth Yellen. I'm going to go through some of the main things to look out for when investing in banks. This has become very topical recently due to the recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which was taken over by regulators in the US earlier in March. So I'm going to show you some of the key things to look out for uh, with a couple of real life examples. And we're going to walk through this book. And you can follow Nate Tobik at Oddball Stocks. And if you want to buy this book, uh, you can get it on Amazon UK or US. I'm going to put some links in the description. So why should we invest in banks? Well, here at Real World Stocks, we like to follow and understand the investments of Warren Buffett. And one of the key things that he's invested in is banks. As you can see, they make up about 18% of his Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Uh, Bank of America, 11%, and American Express, 7%. 
He's owned these for multiple decades. So let's take American Express, for example. Over the last 20 years, from 2003 to 2023, American Express has grown at a compound annual growth rate of 11.8% versus 9.4% for the S&P. So it's beaten it by about 2.4 percentage points. That might not sound like a lot, but if you invested a million dollars in each, after 20 years, your American Express holdings would grow to 10.5 million versus in the S&P, uh, just 6.5 million. Another reason to invest in banks is that it gives you exposure to small business. A lot of businesses like service businesses, like restaurants and other businesses like that, they're not publicly listed. So banks which make loans to these businesses can profit as these businesses grow and increase their loans, increase their deposits. So investing in banks is a way to get exposure to parts of the economy that you might not otherwise be able to invest in through the publicly listed equities. So let's look at the UK and the US banking market. So in the US, there's about 750 publicly traded banks at the moment, and these comprise about 15% of the number of public companies listed in the US. But there's a big four banks, um, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, and Bank of America. And they're 68% of the market by assets. So there's a few big banks, and there's lots of smaller ones. In the UK, it's quite a different picture. There's 17 publicly traded banks, only 17 versus 750 in the US, and these comprise less than 1% of the number of public companies. Again, the big four dominate um, Lloyd's Banking Group, HSBC, Barclays and Royal Bank of Scotland. These are 64% of the market by assets. So what is a bank and how do they make money? And why would somebody use a bank? Well, imagine if you had a world where you had to operate with cash. If you wanted to expand your business, get a loan, or buy a house, you had to ask your friends and family to stump up the money for you. You couldn't go to a bank. You had to pay with cash and shops, and businesses had to transact in cash. Such a world is kind of risky and inefficient, so banks are an important financial intermediary that help life to function more smoothly. So banks take savings deposits, and they pay interest on those deposits for customers, and then they use those deposits to make loans to other customers. And so then they receive interest on the loans, and they pay interest on their deposits. So the difference between those is the net interest. So, and that's often expressed in percentage terms for a bank as the net interest margin. So that's the basic kind of bank business model. Now, there are other more complex bank business models, including investment banking and so on. I'm not going to get into those in this episode. Let's take a real-life example. So we're going to take a U.S. bank called Southside Bank Shares. It's headquartered in Texas, and it's 55 branches there, concentrated around the cities of Dallas and Tyler. So I'm going to come back to this bank and look at its 10K as we walk through the things to consider in the Bank Investor's Handbook. So what are the risks about investing in banks? Well, one of them is leverage. So the bank has a typical balance sheet shown here. And interestingly, in a bank, the money that it's received as deposits are actually counted as liabilities because it is liable to pay the customers the deposits back if they want to have them back. And the assets that the bank has are its loans, our securities, also retained earnings and shareholder capital and so on. And the difference between assets and liabilities is the equity of the bank. So the return on assets is typically 1% to 2% at a bank. So maybe the bank might lend at uh, 4 or 5% and maybe pay 
uh, 2% on deposits, but then of course it has to pay its expenses. So after that, it might get 1% to 2% return. So in order to achieve a market-like return of near 10%, the bank uses leverage to get a return on equity up to 10 or 20%. So just like a deposit in a house, it has a small amount of equity versus its assets and liabilities. And the leverage allows it to achieve a reasonable return. But the leverage carries with it some risks. So for example, if the assets were to decline in value, say there was a crash in house prices, the bank might take losses on its loans. And because its equity might be only be sort of five to fifteen percent of its total balance sheet, if it took five to fifteen percent losses on its loans, then it might uh, wipe out all its equity, and so it would be insolvent. So that's uh, some of the risks of investing in banks. So when investing in banks, it's important to consider the quality of the loan book, and we're going to get to that a bit later on. Another risk that people feel about investing in banks is that they're a black box. They don't understand what the bank does. And this is um, particularly an issue for the huge banks that are harder to appraise. So um, big, big banks, uh, the, the ones that are international, and they do all sorts of different kinds of banking, including investment banking and so on. So one of the ways that we can judge quality of the bank's management and um, how, how well they will fare in a crisis is to look at the past. So we have the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009. And so we can look at their past performance in a crisis. So I'm going to go to a website I like to use called QuickFS. And QuickFS is a great way to look up simple information without ads on companies. So I'm going to look, we're going to come back to our friend Southside Bank Shares here and look at their basic financials. So one thing we can see is during the last financial crisis in 2007-2008, they had a very good return on equity. They, they weren't affected too much by the crisis. So they weathered that one pretty well. Now let's look at another bank um, called Hope Bank Shares. So Hope, Hope Bancor um, actually plunged to a negative return on equity during the crisis. So they had some problems during the last financial crisis. So therefore, uh, this is one of the things I look for, how, how they performed during the, the last financial crisis. Another thing we can look at is understanding their asset type split. And I'm going to come on to that a little bit later in this podcast. And a third thing we can look at is their call reports. So all the banks in the US are required to file reports. Um, here's the link to the website. And a call report details all a, a lot of it's a lot of information about the bank. Another thing we can look at is the call reports. So all banks in the U.S., whether private or public, are required to file call reports um, with the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council. And so you can see in detail their assets there while reading these call reports. So I'm going to introduce this bank investing checklist. This is taken from the Bank Investor's Handbook. So we're going to walk through this BALANCE acronym. So if you're considering investing in a bank, and Nate in his book, the Bank Investor's Handbook has provided us this checklist and this is near the end of the book. And these are key things to consider if you were going to look at banks. And also he recommends that you do it in this particular order as well. So if you find a bank that doesn't pass one of these things, you can skip it and go on to the next one. So you can gradually work your way down. 
So it's kind of an order of importance and an order to tackle things in. So the first one is a bargain. Try to find banks trading at a discount. So how do we do that? I'm going to go to QuickFS again. So we're going to compare um, Hope, Bancor and SBSI. So Hope Bancor is trading a price to book of 0.6. And let's also look at the, and that's right here, the price to book ratio. And so we're also going to look at the loan loss reserves to loans ratio. So it's 1.1%. And the price to earnings is 5.6. Now let's look at SBSI. So here, the price to book is 1.4. The price to earnings ratio is 10.1. And the loan loss reserve to loans ratio is 0.9%. So quite different valuations. That's interesting. So these are some of the metrics that we can look at to look for potential bargains in a bank. But it's only the first step of our checklist. So the second step of the checklist is asset quality. So here we're going to look at troubled assets non-performing loans and the asset quality trend. So for this, we're going to take Southside bank shares and we're going to look at their 10K, our annual report, filed with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US. So let's look at this table for non-performing assets for 20, the year ending 2022 and the year ending 2021. So it's broken down by type. So assets here refers to loans that the bank has with its earning interest on. But in this case, um, they're non-accrual loans. So he's not earning any interest on them because the customers have stopped paying the interest. So it's broken down by loan type. So real estate loans, we've got construction for building houses. We've got one to four family residential housing units. We've got uh, commercial loans for to businesses. And then we've got a, a small amount of loans to individuals, which might be things like credit cards. So total non-accrual loans, which are not earning interest, are $2.8 million. And then we have accruing loans, which are still accumulating interest. And these ones are past due more than 90 days. So more than three months um, past due. So TDR loans stands for Trouble Debt Restructuring Loans. This is where the bank has changed the terms of the loan because the customer is having trouble paying it. And that's the single biggest category here, about $7.8 million. And OREO stands for Other Real Estate Owned. So that would be things like uh, if the bank repossessed a house or other property. Uh, so it has the property not as an investment, but because it's getting it by default because uh, it's collecting the collateral on the loan. So banks typically don't like to have a lot of this in their balance sheet. So when they get it, they'll try and sell it as quickly as possible and turn it back to cash that they can use in their business. So the total non-performing assets we can see here for the year ending 2022 are $10.8 million. So that doesn't really mean a lot until we put it into the context of all of the bank's loans. So if we scroll up a little bit, we can see the total amount of loans that the bank has made uh, and has outstanding at the end of 2022. So it's $4.15 billion. So if you divide that $10.9 million into that, get about 0.26%. So the bank only has 0.26% of loans which are either troubled or non-accruing interest.
which is pretty small. So looking at our checklist once again, the other thing that we can look at is the asset quality trend. So let's look at charge-offs and the Alliance for Credit Losses. So the ALL, or Alliance for Loan Losses, you can see here in this table the balance of the Alliance for Loan Losses at the beginning of the period. So it's about 35 million at the beginning of 2022. And then we have a figure for charge-offs. So charge-offs is where the bank essentially writes off the loan and says we're not going to recover this. But then sometimes the, the bank does manage to recover some of that loan. So you can see here's some recovery of loans that were previously charged off. So then we have the net charge-offs figure, so that's the net loss to the bank. And then we have a provision for or reversal of loan losses. So the bank has provided here about $2 million. So it's increased its provisions um, and it's also uh, done some charge-offs. So the total allowance for loan losses has gone from 35 to 36 million, which is uh, slightly, it's under 1% of all loans the bank has made. So one thing we can look at is the asset quality trend over time. So is the are the allowances for loan losses increasing or decreasing? Are the charge-offs increasing or decreasing over time? So here, uh, this table, we can see these three columns for 2022, 21, and 20. So if we look at the alliance for loan losses to total loan, so look at the percentage. Um, so you can see it's come down from about 1.34% in 2020, uh, down to under 1% in 2021, and then under 0.9% in 2022. So there's a good trend in the asset quality there. Let's look a little bit further back in time. So I'm going to go to the 2020 10K. So here again, we've got um, a number of years. In this case, we've got five years from 2015 to 2019. So you can see the uh, the Alliance for Loan Losses Total Loans was 0.81%, 0 0.7, 0 0.63, 0 0.82, 0.69. So it's kind of bouncing around between 0.6% and then going back to the 22, 22, 10K, about um, 0.9%. There was an increase in 2020, probably due to the pandemic where they increased the Alliance for Loan Losses. But if we look at charge-offs, the charge-offs are very, very low. Uh, net loan charge-offs to average loans 0.02% or 0.03% there. And if we go back in time to 2019 and earlier as well, we can see um, net loan charge-offs to average loans between 0.09% reached a high point in 2016, about almost half a percent. It's been very low since then. So it doesn't seem to be any deterioration or any sort of improvement in asset quality over time, it seems to be fairly constant. So let's go back to our checklist. The next thing to look at is the loans themselves, the type and the length of the loans. So let's look at this table, which shows us the duration and type of the loans. So in real estate loans, you've got construction. And so construction loans, these tend to be mostly shorter duration loans, uh, during one year or less or between one and five years. And then we have one to four family residential. So this is, uh, again, a slightly bigger, maybe about 15% of the total loan portfolio. 
And you can see a lot of those are due after 15 years. There must be a lot of long mortgages there in that type loan type. Commercial loans, again, they're sort of short to medium term duration between one and five years and between five and 15 years. So this is the most significant type of loans that the, the bank is making or comprising almost half of their total loans. So commercial loans might be things like short-term working capital loans for inventory, accounts receivable, uh, short-term, medium-term loans for equipment or business expansion, that kind of loan for companies. And then we have municipal loans. So these are loans made directly to municipalities. Um, for instance, geographical areas, school districts. And these are often pledged via taxes or revenues. And sometimes they have collateral associated with them. Um, Southside state in their 10K that they prefer to lend directly to these entities rather than purchasing securities because it gives them a higher yield. And then we have loans to individuals, which is quite a small part. That would be things like credit cards and so on, overdrafts. So the total loans are $4.2 billion. We can also see in the table below um, whether the loans are fixed or floating rate loans. So for instance, for construction loans, um, about, about one third of them are fixed rate, two thirds floating or adjustable. And then for commercial loans, we're about roughly evenly split, slightly less fixed than floating. For one to four family residential, about three quarters of them are fixed. And then municipal loans, almost all of them are fixed. So the total fixed loans, uh, fixed interest loans are $2.1, $2.2 billion. And the floating or adjustable rate loans are about $1.6 billion. This bank has um, an uh, entity called ALCO, which is the Asset and Liability Committee. They adjust their securities portfolio to minimize interest rate sensitivity and maintain their net interest margin. So, so far in our bank investing checklist, we've looked at whether the a bank is a bargain, whether it's trading at a discount, looked at its asset quality, troubled assets, non-performing loans, asset quality trend, and also specifically on the loans, the type and the length of the loans. Now we're going to come on to assets and liabilities and look at the balance sheet. So let's go to the 10K and look at the balance sheet for Southside Bank shares. So here we can see their balance sheet and we have two years here, 2022 and 2021. So typically you would see a pyramid type structure in the assets. I remember the assets are, are loans here so and, and other assets. So typically, yeah, you see this pyramid type structure where the loans make up the biggest or the base of the pyramid. So you see net loans here is about 4.1 billion after the Alliance for Loan Losses. And then typically the second biggest category is securities. That would be things like municipal bonds, treasuries, other, other securities. So you can also see FHLB stock. And that's quite a small amount here in the balance sheet, just 9 million, but FHLB stands for Federal Home Loan Bank. And that's a combination of 11 different regional banks that offer lending to other banks if they need it. And then the next item in the pyramid, to top off the pyramid is cash and cash equivalents, where cash is around about 200 million. If we add all the securities together, we would get they're about 2.6 billion and then loans as about 4.1 billion.
So we can see there's a couple of different securities categories. We have AFS, which is available for sale. And then we have HTM, which is held to maturity. So there's a big shift from 2021 to 2022 from the available for sale securities into the held to maturity for this bank. So during this period, interest rates were rising quite fast. And of course, when interest rates go up, the value of a security goes down. It is inversely correlated. So then some of these securities would have had a paper loss. So if they had sold them, they would have got less than they paid for them. If they hold them to maturity, though, they will receive the full principal back. We can see the extent of that loss by looking at the value that they're recorded at in the books, which is the original cost price here, uh, $1.3 billion. And then here, the value that they are actually at, their fair value, $1.15 billion. There's about a 200 200 odd million dollar paper loss there but if they hold them to maturity they will be fine so that compares to the equity in the bank of about 750 million so um that's not really a problem for this bank at the moment but you can see the effect of rising interest rates has had on their balance sheet now if they had continued to hold these securities in the available for sale category here then they would have had to recognize a loss on their accounts by moving them to the held to maturity, they don't have to recognize the loss because they're saying we're not going to sell these at a loss. We're going to wait till they mature and then get the full value back. So that's a bit of a summary of the asset side. Now let's look at the liability side. Of course, in a bank, um, deposits are liabilities because they have to pay them back to the depositors if they ask for them. So there's a couple of different kinds, non-interest bearing and interest bearing deposits. So let's look at the liabilities. And remember for a bank, a big part of their liabilities are deposits, which they're liable to pay back to depositors if they ask for them back. So there's a couple of major categories of deposits, non-interest bearing and interest bearing. So we can see this bank's got about $1.6 billion of non-interest bearing and $4.5 billion of interest bearing deposits. I'm gonna go into more detail about what kind of deposits they've got. I'm going to come back to that. So let's look at the other categories on their liabilities statement here. So we've got FHLB borrowings. That's the Federal Home Loan Bank that I mentioned before. So 153 million there. Ideally, there would be no borrowings, but that's a relatively small amount in the context of the balance sheet. So that's okay. And then we also have uh, subordinated notes and trust preferred subordinated debentures. So these are like preference shares, which have been issued and this, this is quite a good way to, for the bank to borrow because they have no date by which they have to pay them back. So it's kind of permanent capital that they've got in their bank. Another thing that we should look at is the off-balance sheet arrangements. So we're going to go to note 17 of the financial statements to see that. So off-balance sheet arrangements here we can see the amounts are really quite trivial. So $3.6 million, which in the context of the of the big balance sheet of the bank is is very almost nothing so that is reassuring if there were large off balance sheet exposures relative to the balance sheet of the bank that might be concerning but that's not a problem here so let's now go to look at the deposits in more detail so this table gives a breakdown of the types of deposits in the bank so we can see we've got about 1.6 billion in private accounts and that's most of the deposits that are non-interest bearing 
And then interest-bearing accounts, we've got money market demand accounts, savings accounts, interest-bearing checking accounts, and so the total for private accounts is $3.6 billion. And then we've got the public accounts as well, another about almost a billion dollars there in deposits. There is some debate about what the best kind of deposits are. I mean, the best kind of deposits would be ones which you have to pay a very low interest rate or no interest rate on, and also deposits that are very sticky, that they're less likely to leave the bank for people having higher rates. Private accounts, we have a range of different types of accounts, and they'll be paying different rates of interest. So in general, the, the higher the rate of interest that's paid, um, the more likely those people are to switch to other banks. So those might be considered less sticky deposits. And the low rates of interest um, would be people who don't switch very often. So one of the best kinds here might be the interest-bearing checking accounts, as people are quite unlikely to change their bank account, uh, individual people. And then we've also got savings accounts. And then going into the, maybe the less sticky deposits, we've got money market demand accounts where people get a better rate of interest. And then uh, the CDs, um, certificates of deposit. People might switch to another bank potentially with some of those if they got a better rate of interest. So interest rates have been going up a lot recently. So the, the movement of deposits is something, uh, and the ret retention of deposits is something that banks need to think about at the moment. So total deposits there, about 6.2 billion. You can see just at the bottom of the page here, we've got the maturities of the CDs. So in 2023, about 619 million will mature and so on. So most of the CDs are one to two years uh, maturity and then the people can move the money if they wish or retain it in the bank with another CD. So what do we want to look for uh, in the deposits or the liabilities section of the balance sheet? Well, I guess you want to look at the trends over time to see are there big changes from one category to the other. So here, the main changes that we can see are interest-bearing checking accounts up about 270 million, and then also CDs under 250,000, again up about 180 million or so. And also CDs of 250,000 or more, they're again up as well. So the deposits are increasing from the year 2021 to 2022. So we want to look for a trend if there were deposits were decreasing, um, then the bank would have to shrink its loan book potentially. So that's something we want to look out for. Let's go back to our presentation to see what's next in the bank checklist. So we're at N for new management and the tenure of the management. So the tenure of the management and the record is important because banking uses money, which is a commodity. Um, one bank's money is the same as another bank's money. So how the management operates and how they run the bank is very important in determining the profitability and the strength of the bank. So there is a document uh, called the 14A proxy, which we can look at, and that will tell us how long the current board have been at the bank and what levels of experience they've got. If they had changed recently, a lot of them, uh, or if the bank board was very new, that might be something we might be concerned about. So let's have a look at the 14A proxy which is filed with the SEC. Okay, so this table here, information about directors, nominees, and executive officers, uh, basically tells you how long all of the board members of the bank 
directors have been in position. So you can look down the table here and we can see that a lot of them have been in position for five to ten years and one of them even since 1980s. And then more recent additions, there's about two or three people in the last two or three years. But the bank overall has got a reasonable tenure. We can also see what their knowledge, skills and experience are. So there's a whole list of different categories here. So we can just check to see, do they have all of the different kinds of knowledge required across the board to address the risks that the bank may face? And if, if you saw like a deficit in one of these categories, that would be a concern. They seem to be fairly well covered here across the different categories. So that's something we can look for as well. So let's go back to our presentation again and look at the next thing in our checklist. So the next item is capital ratios. So we're going to check what the bank's capital ratios are versus the minimums required by the regulator. So for this, we can go back to the 10K once more. The bank gives a summary table in the 10K of the regulatory minimums, capital required versus what they have in their bank. So we can see there's four columns here in this table. So the common equity tier one risk-based capital ratio, the regulators require at least four and a half percent um, they have to be 6.5% to be well capitalized. Southside Bank has 12.6%. So Southside Bank shares is 12.6%. And the bank itself, that's the bank holding company, uh, which has the bank as a subsidiary. And the bank itself is 15.1%. So they're very well capitalized, well above the regulatory minimum and also well above the regulatory minimum to be well well capitalized as well. So what does common tier one equity capital include? Well, it gives a bit of a description up here as to what it includes, but essentially it's uh, the common stock related paid in capital, net of treasury stock, that's shares they've bought back, and retained earnings as well. So if we go to page 64 of the 10K, we can see a discussion of this. So this gives a discussion of the common equity tier one capital and explains what it, what it includes and so on. So we would say this bank is fairly safe and well capitalized. So let's go to the final point in our checklist, which is the earnings of the bank. So one of the things we can consider in terms of the earnings is the efficiency of the bank. I'm gonna get into that in a minute. So all these bank branches that it has, they cost money to run. So it makes a net interest margin, but it has to deduct its non-interest expenses, the expenses to run the bank. Okay, so this is the income statement of the bank. And the reason that we look at this last is because even if a bank has got is reporting good earnings, um, if it has problems with the other items in the checklist, you maybe wouldn't want to buy it. So this is something we can look at at the end. And that's what uh, Nate Tobik recommends in his book, The Bank Investor's Handbook, that we look at this last. So let's look down the income statement. And we've got three years here. So 2022, interest income uh, is the first line. So most of the interest income comes in from loans. We also have investment securities, taxable and tax exempt. So some of municipal bonds, for example, are, you don't have to pay taxes on those. So they're attractive to hold for the bank and MBS is mortgage-backed securities. And then we also have a few other 
bits and pieces here. So adding up to about $253 million in interest income. But then of course the bank has to pay interest as well on the deposits that the customers have. So we have, that's the single biggest category in the interest expense. We've got 30 million there uh, of interest paid on deposits. And then our total interest expense across all the different types, including dividends and preference shares, uh, payments on the subordinated notes, other borrowings is about 40 million. So then we have our net interest income, about 212 million. Now the bank will also provide for credit losses. So this is uh, provisions for losses they think they might incur for loans that are going bad, which is relatively small here, about 1.5% of the net interest income, giving us a net interest income after provision for credit losses of 209 million. This could be thought of as the gross income of the bank, essentially, their, their gross profit. Then we have non-interest income and expenses. So non-interest income might be things like uh, deposit services. So that's the, things like fees or uh, charges that the bank makes to its customers. And then we all have other things like uh, fees for trusts. So if the bank sets up a trust for somebody, say for inheritance purposes, and then there's brokerage services, um, bank-owned life insurance, bully. So total non-interest income is about 41 million. And then we have the non-interest expense. So this is where all of the overheads of running the bank come in. So we have the salaries and employee benefits is the single biggest category here, 83 million. And net occupancy, that's essentially the cost of using their premises and running their branches, about 15 million. So if we add all these together, um, we have a total of about 130 million non-interest expenses. So then we take the 209 million, take away the 130, and we get the income before income tax. And then we have about uh, $15 million worth of income tax. So net income is about 105 million. So one thing that we can do to compare one bank to another is the calculate their efficiency ratio. That's the non-interest operating expenses, which in this case be about 130 million, divided by the net interest income and provision plus provisions for credit losses. Um, so in this case, that's 130 million divided by uh, 209, but 62%. So lower is better. Uh, if it was 100%, that would mean that the operating expenses were quit were equal to the net interest income, so there wouldn't be any net profit. So 100% would be like break even. Uh, so 50% or less is generally considered optimal, but lower is better. The other thing we can notice here is the relatively low tax rate for the bank. And that we can look at that in more detail if we go to page 51. So pre-tax income uh, for this last year, in 2022 was 120 million. Income tax expense, 15 million. So then, the bank calculates an effective tax rate, the ETR, of 12.2%. And that's due to the income being tax exempt. So the statutory rate here is 21% for corporation tax for the bank. But there's tax exempt income from municipal loans and securities and bank owned life insurance. And therefore, the bank pays a lot less in income taxes than that 21%. And let's finish up by looking at the stats for the bank on QuickFS. So here's the QuickFS and the overall stats for the bank. So you can see the valuation ratios here. The price to earnings is about 10.1. 
And we can also look at things like the growth in deposits over time versus the growth in um, assets. So deposits have grown by about 10% compounded over the last 10 years, whereas earning assets have grown by 8.4%. So you can see here that gross loans have only grown by 6%. So then the bank is, uh, over this period, has moved more of its assets into securities instead of loans because the earning assets have grown by a higher rate than the loan, loan growth rate. Um, and also the, you can see that the growth in assets is less than the growth in deposits. And that you can see here that um, the loans to deposits ratio has come down. So it was about 100% um, 2013-2014. So the bank has um, uh, just about 2014, they've decided to step down the amount of lending that they're making versus their deposits. So you can see that here in the fall in the return on equity. So the bank was earning about 13 to 15% return on equity, and then it stepped down the amount of uh, loans to deposits, the ratio, so it, to about 70%, so now it's gone down to about 10 to 12% return on equity. So let's go back to our presentation to look at the checklist once more. So these are some of the things you can look for when you're looking at a bank. And really you can search through the 10K and you can find out all these things. I'd recommend reading the whole 10K and really understanding the bank if you want to invest in it. And also consider reading other banks uh, of similar size as well, just to get a sense of what's normal and what's uh, different about them. And you can see anything that's unusual. So that concludes our look at the Bank Investor's Handbook. Don't forget that the links are in the description if you want to buy a copy of the book. And you can also visit our website at www.realworthstocks.com and there you can sign up to our free email list to get investing content. We also have a substack at realworthstocks.substack.com. Again, you can get free investing content there. And you can also follow me on Twitter at realworthstocks. We also have a subscription service with monthly stock picks and buy and sell alerts. We provide in-depth research reports on all our stock picks and you can see what we're invested in. And our strategies are small cap value, Ben Graham net nets and merger arbitrage strategies. And finally, a disclosure, Real World Stocks doesn't own any of the banks described in this presentation today. Thanks for listening and see you next time.